Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Dustin Huffman. Russ Parker will be coming up later on in this segment. Mark Magnuson and Riley Smith will also join us in the program. But first, let's go ahead and take a look at the headlines and hope you all had a very happy Thanksgiving earlier this week. The Farm Bill is often known as the most bipartisan piece of legislation that Congress works on each cycle. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa says that during this year's attempt to create a new five-year Farm Bill, he noticed a shift in attitudes. And it seems to me that since last summer, the inability, at least in the Senate, I don't know how it is in the House, to reach a basic agreement that if you save money in one part of the farm bill, it could be spent in another part of the farm bill, or maybe not spent at all. And that basic decision has turned out to be a big difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. He says while he's been involved in helping to craft several farm bills during his time in Congress, and while there have been sticking points in the past, this attempt led to more partisan disagreement than he's ever seen before. Now, I don't want to say that in seven, eight, or nine farm bills that I've been involved with that uh, that hasn't occurred before, but I have no memory of it. And, and for this to go on for six months, like it has this year, I think is troubling for next year. In echoing his recent statements about attempting to put together a new five-year farm bill next year, Grassley once again stressed that it needs to be done as early as possible. But I can assure the farmers of Iowa that if they're still carried through till next year, there'll be another one-year extension in election year. And I would say this for advocacy to make a decision quickly, if we don't get a farm bill passed before the uh, Democrat-Republican conventions next year, we aren't going to get a farm bill in 2024. That again was Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. The national corn growers and 16 state-affiliate associations joined more than 140 allied national, regional, and state commodity organizations opposing changes to USDA disaster relief. The group sent a letter to Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack relaying their concerns with the design of the Emergency Relief Program for 2022. While the group showed appreciation for the allocation of $3.74 billion in much-needed ERP assistance, the groups expressed serious concerns with the changes. The biggest change is a progressive factor that reduces the disaster assistance for many eligible growers based on the size of their losses. USDA also changed the method used to incorporate producer-paid insurance premiums. In the case of the progressive payment factor, they say they oppose the policy that delivers the least amount of benefit to those who have lost the most outside of the payment limits provided in the statute. The letter says support should be equitable for losses of all magnitudes. And finally, the Iowa Pork Producers Association paid tribute to seven players in the state high school football championships for their valuable but often unheralded contributions. The Hog of the Game Award goes to the outstanding offensive lineman in each of the seven state championship games. Those awards were sponsored by the Iowa Pork Producers Association and awarded by the Iowa High School Sports Network. The seven players receive a personalized trophy upon graduation of high school. Each respective school receives a commemorative plaque to be displayed in their trophy case. Presentations were made during the conclusion of each state title game, which took place November 15th and 16th at the UNI Dome in Cedar Falls. For these stories and more, don't forget to log on to our website at iowaagnet.com. 
That's where you'll find all the information we post all week long, including our market reports and even the podcasts we put out, including the one we do of Weekend Ag Matters. That's it for me, Russ Parker, in next with his faith-based food for thought. Last week, as you may have heard from our broadcaster team, we attended the National Association of Farm Broadcasting's 80th Annual Convention. For me, it was my 45th time being in Kansas City. Many have attended for more years than that. So many of those attending I count as my business family, and I look forward to the conversation, the handshakes, and the camaraderie. And every year it seems that friendships get renewed, even after years of not seeing each other. Seems we're always older, but we pick up right where we left off. And new relationships were forged as well. For example, we had two young people from Iowa State job shadow our team for a few hours. Both ag communications majors, they got a full dose of what the broadcasting team does every day. Interviews, writing, recording, editing, posting content, etc. I'm sure they learned a whole lot more about us at the end of the day. And they've got a chance to start their memories at an NAFB convention. And we in turn got a chance to interact with some very talented young people who have a passion for agriculture. At this convention, there are lots of celebrations, awards for broadcasting excellence, recognition for hard work, and excellent journalism. And in all of this, there's a time when those who have passed away during the year are remembered. And no matter how I prepare myself, I get caught in recalling those who I have known. People like Howard Heath and Ed Johnson and Keith Kirkpatrick and Evan Slack and Ed Slazarzik and Bob Nance and Jerry Passer and others. And what brings this full circle is that many of these represented competing entities. And yet somehow NAFB and the nature of the organization surpasses all of that as the focus is on those who have a love for telling agriculture's story. And I'll bet it won't surprise you at every formal meal Grace has said at this convention. And this year particularly... I felt that common thread amongst us that whispered to me, Jesus Christ is alive and well and present in this organization. And more times than I can remember from the past, conversations focused on confirming our relationships with Christ, leaning on him for strength and support beyond our own understanding, and giving thanks for the blessings of being involved in agriculture so confirming in this season of thanksgiving so much to be thankful for food for thought i hope this is russ parker have a blessed day thanks russ and that's going to put the wraps on segment one here of weekend ag matters we're going to take a quick break and when we come back mark magnuson will be joining us here on weekend ag matters If you thought soybeans were only used for tofu, think again. From tires and adhesives to next-generation asphalt, soy is used to create over 1,000 industrial products and counting. Thanks to your soy checkoff investment, the sky's the limit for Iowa soybean farmers. Oh, and speaking of skies, did I mention soy is also used in sustainable aviation fuel? The Iowa Soybean Association, powered by the soy checkoff, is driven to deliver for Iowa's 40,000 soybean farmers. Learn more at IASoybeans.com.
Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. In segment number two of Weekend Ag Matters, I am joined by the Vice President of Fertilizer at StoneX, Josh Linville. We discuss the countervailing duties change with Moroccan phosphate, how the conflict in Israel both directly and indirectly affects the fertilizer supply, and the overall price situation for Iowa farmers looking to buy fertilizer. Josh, we've had a lot of interesting developments in the world of fertilizer here very recently. Let's start off with the situation for the countervailing duties coming from that phosphate from overseas. Could you explain the whole process maybe for those who aren't that well versed in it? Yeah, let's back up to summer of 2020. Uh, phosphate values were at very, very low levels. North American manufacturers were having to curtail production because it was literally at or below their cost of production. And they were looking for protection. When you look at it, the U.S. government imposes pretty strict regulations as far as what they can do, what they have to do after the mines are done, things like that. Other countries around the world don't have those same restrictions, and so they're looking for help. Ultimately, we put uh, countervailing duty rates against Russia and Morocco. Now, they have been fighting it ever since then, and we finally saw a breakthrough here in the last few weeks. Unfortunately, Russian product has continued to come to the U.S. market. There was a Foss Agro uh, company based there. Their rate was about 9%. They were willing to pay that rate and continue to come here. They just changed that rate. They moved from 9% to the upper 20 percentile. So unfortunately, that should effectively cut them out of the marketplace. On the fortunate side, the, the win side of the situation is Morocco was set at 20%. They moved them all the way down to 2.12%. That was a huge win. Everybody got very excited, like, oh, prices are going to tank. Supplies are going to come here. We're in very good shape. Unfortunately, we kind of had to take a step back and say, calm down. That's probably not the case. The Chinese government has recently imposed uh, restrictions on exporting phosphate. And they're the global leader as far as exports go on a normal basis. And Morocco doesn't want to pay anything for a duty. So if China is no longer there exporting, they've got plenty of demand around the world they can continue to go to. They're going to sit there and say, yeah, thanks for getting it to 2.12%. If you'll drop another 2.12%, we'll come. So we don't think they're going to come because they start flooding the market that their argument just doesn't hold water anymore. So we don't think that they're coming. We think that we lost Russia. Things probably stay tight on an S&D perspective through next spring at least. There are still challenges against the duty rate. They might come to some sort of fruition come February, March. We've got to wait and see. And the thing, the other part of that that I didn't quite understand with the Moroccan situation is that we were expecting, you know, some type of a change in the duties, but we thought it was going to take a little bit of a longer time period. And all of a sudden we had a decision just like that. It switched on a dime. How did that happen? Yeah, that's the problem. There are so many different challenges going on to this thing that everybody's getting everything mixed up. And truth be told, I, I can't sit there and say that I'm an expert in it. It's, this stuff starts getting into legal speak. I can't even begin to comprehend. But the, the changes that were just made, Morocco was originally, it was suggested to move them from a 20% down to 15%. The Foss Agro Russian company, they, they said move it from 9% to 50, I think it was three, 53%. Well, they only moved them up to like 26 and a half, but it was enough to make the change. The Morocco thing to 2.12 was a major surprise. These other challenges that people are talking about taking longer, these are the ones where people are saying the duty rate in general is unfounded. There is no need for them. This is the round that we don't think we're going to get the answer until February, March. Josh, unfortunately, when we have turmoil in the world, especially when it comes to conflict, it usually ends up affecting the fertilizer market, it seems like, in some way. And that's currently happening now in Israel, isn't it? Yes, it is. And there's a lot of direct impacts. There's a lot of indirect impacts. From the potash market, Israel is the fourth largest exporter of potash in the world. And, and of course, this it doesn't touch on the humanitarian situation, right? I'm a fertilizer guy, so that's what we focus on. We watch that very, very closely. Now, there has been no attacks on that operation. The supplies have continued to roll. They, have, they haven't had to slow down whatsoever. 
But we're watching, it takes one rocket in the wrong place. And all of a sudden that whole storyline changes. So we're watching that very closely. Indirectly, we have seen energy prices go up, which of course mean nitrogen prices have to go up with it. We are watching uh, countries like Turkey and Syria and mostly Iran. Uh, people don't understand the number of tons of nitrogen that flow through that Persian Gulf. Now, if all of a sudden Iran starts to enter the mix and we start to go against them, everybody will talk about oil shipment. That will be the news story. But we cannot say enough about how many tons like urea move through that corridor. They will be just as impacted as every oil ship that moves through there. So a lot of indirect stuff, a lot of direct stuff. Fortunately, we haven't seen the steps towards that. But every single morning I wake up and it's the very first thing I check. I pull up the news agency to see, did Iran or somebody else do something? And does that change our outlook? And unfortunately, Josh, the last time we talked, we were talking about the impacts of the Russian and Ukrainian conflict on fertilizer. Has that situation at least improved? It, obviously, Russia is still in Ukraine. Uh, that still keeps us weary that something could change. But Russian exports have continued for fertilizer. That is one sector that hasn't largely been touched. Now, countries like Canada and Australia put sanctions on their fertilizer, but most of the rest of the world said, nope, we're going to keep bringing that product. So that was a very big fear back in March, April of 2022. That was unfounded. Fortunately, they've continued to come. We're watching it very closely. It's on the list of low probability, high impact situations we're watching. Josh Linville, Vice President of Fertilizer with StoneX. Josh, is there anything you'd like to let our audience in Iowa know about when it comes to anything else that you're keeping an eye on and tracking? It's We need to continue to watch everything around the world. Things halfway around the world can absolutely affect you. I don't care if you're the smallest or the biggest person in Iowa. It will have an impact. But don't forget about the home factor. We have to keep eyes on our home area. Logistics, very big thing. The river system is continuing to struggle with water flows. If that thing shuts down again and gets very low, our rates go up. You could see me talking about New Orleans, Louisiana values dropping by $20, but you could also see your local price go up 10 if that logistical chain gets stressed. So continue having those conversations with your supplier, with your retailer. Don't look at that as adversarial. There's a lot of risk still in this marketplace. There's still a lot of volatility. The more conversations, the better suited we'll be to get through this next fall and next spring. And I'm going to ask you to dumb it down for me specifically, Josh. Right now, our current situation, you're going to buy some fertilizer or line some up. Situation good, bad, or ugly? Much, much better than uh, spring of 22. Uh, still not quite as low as we'd like on some of these values. Phosphate values are still on the high side. Potash looks very good. Urea looks like it's getting down to a level it should start bottoming out. And hydrus is on the high side now, but a lot of the fall stuff is already locked up, and we don't have spring programs yet. UAN is well-priced, and we haven't seen that price move in several, several weeks. Uh, best thing I can say is if you look at your inputs and you say, I like these values, consider selling some grain against it to make sure you lock up the value. Um, if you can call the low of the fertilizer and the high of the grain market every single time, good work. But uh, most of the time, that's pretty tough to do, so we can lock in the value. That's where we want to be. Thanks so much, Josh Linville with StoneX. All right, thank you, sir. That is Josh Linville, the Vice President of Fertilizer with StoneX. And that wraps up segment number two in this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. Up next, Riley Smith will close out this week's show with segment number three of Weekend Ag Matters here on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. November is full of weekly observances, which relate to the ag industry. There's National Hunger and Homeless Awareness Week, National Farm City Week, National Better Conservation Week, the Thanksgiving holiday, and so much more. Take the time to share the story of what your family farm is doing to be better stewards of the land and water. Also consider making a donation of food and time to help those who are less fortunate than yourselves. We are truly blessed. Do what you can to make an impact in the world around you, this month and always. This message is from your friends at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. 
Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's Riley Smith. Talking with Dr. Greg Klein of Berger Ingelheim. Uh, of course, we talked at World Pork Expo as well. Since then, uh, we're looking at new salmonella standards from uh, FSIS. Uh, just tell us first off a little bit on how many stere uh, serotypes of salmonella uh, are out there and which serotypes affect uh, both swine and people. Yeah, um, there's 2,500 different serotypes of salmonella. Now that seems daunting, but it's not that bad. There's probably only about three or four that we're concerned about in the pig industry. Um, but realistically on that transmission, the, the Salmonella typhimurium, the monophasics are two that of the strains that we would see in humans and in pigs and has some importance. Uh, the, 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 the important thing on these is that um, the Food Safety Inspection Service, Department of Agriculture, has indicated that they wish to change the Salmonella testing protocols at harvest. Now what that means to our producers out there is that they need to be aware that those changes may result in more uh, salmonella being re recovered just because the simply the change in technique. Um, and with that, there's going to be some monitoring. With that, there's going to be some need to reduce. And so we're going to see some highlighted uh, instructions on things that we can do on the farm uh, to reduce uh, pre-harvest salmonella colonization in these pigs. And it's going to be important for the producers to understand that there are things that they can do to reduce uh, salmonella uh, colonization, reduce salmonella prevalence. And the good news, Riley, is doing those things will also improve performance. So it's the right thing to do and it will help our bottom line. Right, exactly. You know, that's always you know one of those things where we talk about in in all facets of agriculture, where it's you know a lot of times when you're doing the right and most sustainable thing, you're also increasing your profit. So it's one of those win-win situations. So, what are some of those pre-harvest strategies that producers can start looking at uh, when it comes to salmonella management, making sure they're performing at that level that uh, needs to be met? You know, most of it's going to be basic blocking and tackling. It's going to be stuff you already know, that emphasis, rodent control, emphasis on cleanliness between groups, sanitation, realizing there may be a risk certain times of the year. The third quarter of the year, the period we just left, carries uh, oftentimes uh, data shown a high risk. But also, I think a vaccination program has shown that we can significantly um, well, greatly reduce the amount of colonization. And uh, this is something that uh, we've done work with at Beringer Ingelheim um, in the last 10 years. It's more, more work is going to be ongoing on this. But um, it, like you said, I like, I like how you said a win-win situation because that really is what we're looking for is doing the right thing for the industry and also helping your bottom line at the same time. It is a win-win. And of course, we're looking specifically at a Salmonella typhimurum as well. Uh, what are some of the vaccine types that producers should be considering uh, to make sure to tackle uh, that uh, you know strain in general? Yeah, traditionally, um, the vaccines in the marketplace have been Salmonella cholera suis. Gosh, Riley, I remember a time when I first came out of vet school. It was before PERS, okay? <laughs> it was before PERS. Salmonella cholera suis was probably one of the bigger, biggest problems I dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis on, on pigs. It was common. And so the salmonella cholera suis vaccines came in the marketplace to combat that. And we know that the salmonella cholera suis vaccines, uh, and they're common in the marketplace, uh, provide cross protection, some cross protection to what we call the group B salmonella. So cholera suis is a group C, 
typhimurium, the monophasic strain, which is the most common salmonella now in pigs and in people, um, will provide some cross protection. Um, we're kind of we're kind of proud of the fact that Beringer Ingelheim we have the only Salmonella cholera suis and Salmonella typhimurium uh, biphase. We've got two different strains. We're the only one in, in the vaccine. We're the only ones in the marketplace that have that. It gives uh, it affords better protection uh, against Salmonella typhimurium against the monophasic Salmonella, the most common strain. So, and of course, uh, you know, when we're talking vaccines, you guys have that new uh, oral vaccine product that's for those pigs. And, you know, like you and I talked at World Pork, it's kind of one of those deals where, you know, pigs like to chew on things. So why not apply the vaccine there and let them do what they do and, and apply it that way? So, you know, can we first off just talk a little bit about Lasonia and Salmonella and, you know, why exactly we're, uh, you know, vaccinating against these things? Well, quite simply, we're vaccinating because they're really, really common. Um, data has shown that more than 90% of all the herds in the United States are Lawsonia positive. And Salmonella may be a bit underappreciated, but that number is probably in the range of 60% that we can find Salmonella in herds in, in the U.S. It's very, very common to see those things. So traditionally, um, you know, we're going to be challenged with some enteric issues. Um, you know, and these are both generally Salmonella, Typhumarium, and Lawsonia not going to be that dramatic mortality loss but boy pigs get uneven they don't grow they increase your costs because they don't convert feed you know as well so um yeah it's and and bad news recent research has shown that when you have salmonella and lawsonia together and ileitis together it isn't an additive effect it's it's a multiplicative effect so one plus one equals more than two when they're both there so um it's common to, uh, to vaccinate for both in the United States. Encourage you know, uh, our producers throughout, talk with their veterinarians, see what's right, but uh, these are incredibly common organisms in the U.S. pigs. So and then how are these vaccines traditionally applied? Because we know this new oral strategy is uh, you know, newer to the marketplace and kind of almost revolutionary you know, when we're looking at that. And, you know, I only had growing up you know, around eight pigs for my uh, show livestock for 4-H and FFA. And I can tell you how tough it was to get those suckers vaccinated. So yeah. you know, how are we looking at those traditional methods compared to you know, this new oral method that you guys are you know, putting out there? Yeah, these vaccines, uh, what we're talking about, enterosol ileitis and enterosol salmonella TC, are both oral vaccines, meaning they're delivered orally to the pig. A lot of ways to do that. Um, you know, Riley, you can pick a pig up and squirt it in her mouth. That's a lot of work. I'm not into a lot of work. And, uh, you know, so you can also run it through the medicator to a group of pigs. You know, easy way we've done that for 25 years with enterosol ileitis. But recently, we've been looking at a different way to deliver the vaccine to pigs um, in the farrowing crate. And it's through the use of, of a gel product added to the vaccine and applied to the comfort mat, uh, applied to the heat mat in, in the farrowing crate. And um, gosh, the advantages are big. It, it is so fast. So a few months ago, I vaccinated, went help vaccinate. I, I'm saying I vaccinate. I was there. I watched it happen. So uh, we vaccinate 48 crates in three minutes. It's so easy to, to do and provide the protection at a right time. Um, I will tell you this, the story, the producer, when, when we did that, he was, he was like, oh my, I, I, I want this. I want to do this because it's so fast and so easy. And uh, we got a lot of pigs underneath our belt that we vaccinated this way. Um, they're flying through to market and everything is really good. Um, 
it's nice. It's nice when we can apply excellent vaccines in a way that's easy and end up with good results. And then, Riley, we're back to that win-win again you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, you know, obviously the first thing that comes to mind was like the labor reduction, right? And we're in a market where it's tougher and tougher to find that labor, you know, and, and be able to, to do those things with the pigs. But on top of that, you know, we're reducing stress among those pigs as well because we know that that chewing and rooting, you know, um, behavior that they have is a de-stressing uh, you know, behavior that those pigs have. So just applying that vaccine on there, they really don't even know that they're, you know, getting it that much and, and they're just doing what they naturally do. And then, you know, low stress, low labor, uh, you know, we keep talking about it, but it's, a, you know, one of those win-win situations. You know, that's exactly right. You know, you know what baby pigs do? Something new comes in the environment. What is this? And that, that's exactly what they do when you apply the vaccine on the comfort mat, is these baby pigs come over and checking it out, and Riley, they vaccinate themselves. Now that's pretty simple. It's oral, you know, so there's very little to no stress on the baby pigs, but there's also very little to no stress on the humans that are giving the vaccines, as opposed to picking one up, squirting in their mouth, or even giving injections. So um, yeah, it's really low stress um, for, the, for the pig and for the human. Greg, lots of great information today on both that salmonella discussion as well as the new oral vaccine. Uh, is there anything else our producers, our listeners and viewers should know about today? You know, Riley, I would encourage those producers, talk with your herd veterinarian about these potential changes of FSIS. It's got an opportunity for us to maybe get a little bit ahead of the curve before these regulations are forced upon us. Um, you know, things we can do uh, right now, but your herd veterinarian be a great source of information. And of course, if they want to look online as well, you know, where can they find some of these resources? BaringerEngelheim.com. Greg, thanks for taking the time to visit with us today. Thank you, Riley. That again was Dr. Greg Klein. He is a senior key account veterinarian with Beringer Ingelheim. And that's it for segment two of this week's show. When we come back, Mark talks with Josh Linville. He's the vice president of fertilizer with Stonex. This is Weekend Ag Matters. 